CD3 Modo, the university gardener, was weeding a rose bed when the ancient velvet lawn beside him heaved and sprouted a hardy perennial Windle Poons, who blinked in the light. Is that you, Modo? That's right, Mr. Poons, said the dwarf. Shall I give you a hand up? I think I can manage, thank you. I've got a shovel in the shed, if you like. No, it's perfectly all right. Windle pulled himself out of the grass and brushed the soil off the remains of his robe. Sorry about your lawn, he added, looking down at the hole. Don't mention it, Mr. Poons. Did it um, take long to get it looking like that? About five hundred years, I think. Gosh, I am sorry. I was aiming for the cellars, but I seem to have lost my bearings. Don't you worry about that, Mr. Poons, said the dwarf cheerfully. Everything's growing like crazy anyway. I'll fill it in this afternoon and put some more seed down and five hundred years will just zoom past. You wait and see. The way things are going, I, I probably will, said Windle moodily. He looked around. Is the Arch-Chancellor here? he said. I saw them all going up to the palace, said the gardener. Then I think I'll just go and have a quick bath and a change of clothes. I wouldn't want to disturb anyone. I heard you wasn't just dead but buried too, said the gardener, as Windle lurched off. That's right. Can't keep a good man down, eh? Windle turned back. By the way, where's Elm Street? Modo scratched an ear. Isn't it that one off Treacle Mine Road? Oh, yes, I, I remember. Modo went back to his weeding. The circular nature of Windle Poon's death didn't bother him much. After all, trees looked dead in the winter, burst forth again every spring. Dried-up old seeds went in the ground, fresh young plants sprang up. Practically nothing ever died for long. Take compost, for example. Modo believed in compost with the same passion that other people believed in gods. His compost heaps heaved and fermented and glowed faintly in the dark. Perhaps because of the mysterious and possibly illegal ingredients Modo fed them, although nothing had ever been proved, and anyway no one was about to dig into one to see what was in it. All dead stuff, but somehow alive, and it certainly grew roses. The senior wrangler had explained to Modo that his roses grew so big because it was a miracle of existence, but Modo privately thought that they just wanted to get as far away from the compost as possible. The heaps were in for a treat tonight. The weeds were really doing well. He'd never known plants to grow so fast and luxuriantly. It must be all the compost, Modo thought. By the time the wizards reached the palace, it was in uproar. Pieces of furniture were gliding across the ceiling. A shoal of cutlery like silvery minnows in mid-air flashed past the Arch-Chancellor and dived away down a corridor. The place seemed to be in the grip of a selective and tidy-minded hurricane. Other people had already arrived. They included a group dressed very like the wizards in many ways, although there were important differences to the trained eye. Priests, said the dean, here, before us. The two groups began very surreptitiously to adopt positions that left their hands free. What good are they, said the senior wrangler. There was a noticeable drop in metaphorical temperature. A carpet undulated past. The Arch-Chancellor met the gaze of the enormous chief priest of Blind Eo, who, as senior priest of the senior god in the Discworld's rambling pantheon, was the nearest thing Ankh Morpork had to a spokesman on religious affairs. Credulous fools, muttered the senior wrangler. Godless tinkerers, said a small acolyte peering out from behind the chief priest's bulk. Gullible idiots, atheistic scum, servile morons, childish conjurers, Bloodthirsty priests? Interfering wizards? Ridcully raised an eyebrow. The chief priest nodded very slightly. They left the two groups hurling imprecations at each other from a safe distance and strolled nonchalantly towards a comparatively quiet part of the room where, beside a statue of one of the patrician's predecessors, they turned and faced one another again. So, how are things in the god-bothering business? said Ridcully. We do our humble best. How is the dangerous meddling with things man was not meant to understand? 
Mm, pretty fair, pretty fair. Ridcully removed his hat and fished inside the pointy bit. Can I offer you a drop of something? Alcohol is a snare for the spirit. Would you care for a cigarette? I believe you people indulge. Mm, not me. If I was to tell you what that stuff does to your lungs... Ridcully unscrewed the very tip of his hat and poured a generous measure of brandy into it. So, he said, what's happening? We had an altar float up into the air and drop on us. Uh, a chandelier unscrewed itself. Everything's unscrewing itself, you know. I saw a suit of clothes run past on the way here. Mm, two pairs of pants for seven dollars. Hmm. Did you see the label? Everything's throbbing, too. Notice the way everything's throbbing? We thought it was you people. Oh, it's not magic. I suppose the gods aren't more than usually unhappy? Apparently not. Behind them, the priest and the wizards were screaming chin to chin. The chief priest moved in a little closer. I think I could be strong enough to master and defeat. Just a little snare, he said. I haven't felt like this since Mrs. Cake was one of my flock. Mrs. Cake? What's a uh, Mrs. Cake? You have ghastly things from the dungeon dimensions and things, yes? Terrible hazards of your ungodly profession, said the chief priest. Uh, yes. We have someone called Mrs. Cake. Ridcully gave him an inquiring look. Don't ask, said the priest, shuddering. Just be grateful you'll never have to find out. Ridcully silently passed him the brandy. Just between the two of us, said the priest, have you got any ideas about all this? The guards are trying to dig his lordship out. You know he'll want answers. I'm not even certain I know the questions. Hmm. Not magic and not gods, said Ridcully. Can I have the snare back, thank you? Not magic and not gods. Hmm. That doesn't leave us much, does it? I suppose there's not some kind of magic you don't know about. Well... If there is, we don't know about it. Fair enough, the priest conceded. I suppose it's not the gods up to a bit of mm, ungodliness on the side, said Ridcully, clutching at one last straw. A couple of them had a bit of a tiff or something, messing around with golden apples or, or, or something. It's very quiet on the god front right now, said the chief priest. His eyes glazed as he spoke, apparently reading from a script inside his head. Hyperopia, goddess of shoes, thinks that Sandalfon, god of corridors, is the long-lost twin brother of Groon, god of unseasonal fruit. Who put the goat in the bed of Ofla, the crocodile god? Is Ofla forging an alliance with seven-handed Sek? Meanwhile, Hokey the jokester is up to his old tricks. Yes, 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 all right, said Ridcully. I've never been able to get interested in all that stuff myself. Behind them, the dean was trying to prevent the lecturer in recent runes from attempting to turn the priest of Offla the Crocodile God into a set of matching suitcases, and the bursar had a bad nosebleed from a lucky blow with a thurible. What we've got to present here, said Ridcully, is a united front, right? Agreed, said the chief priest. Right. For now. A small rug sign-waved past at eye level. The chief priest handed back the brandy bottle. Incidentally, Mother says you haven't written lately, he said. Yeah. The other wizards would have been surprised at their arch-chancellor's look of contrite embarrassment. I've been busy. You know how it is. She said to be sure to remind you she's expecting both of us over for lunch on Hogswatch Day. I haven't forgotten said Ridcully glumly. I'm looking forward to it. He turned to the melee behind them. Cut it out, you fellows, he said. Brethren, desist, bellowed the chief priest. The senior wrangler released his grip on the head of the high priest of the cult of Hinky. A couple of curates stopped kicking the bursar. There was a general adjustment of clothing, a finding of hats, and a bout of embarrassed coughing. That's better, 
said Ridcully. Now then, his eminence, the chief priest, and myself have decided... The dean glowered at a very small bishop. He kicked me. You kicked me. Oh, I never did, my son. You bloody well did, the dean hissed. Sideways, so they wouldn't see. Have decided, repeated Ridcully, glaring at the dean, to pursue a solution to the current disturbances in a spirit of, of, of brotherhood and goodwill, and that includes you, senior wrangler. I couldn't help it. He pushed me. Well, may you be forgiven, said the Archdeacon of Thrum stoutly. There was a crash from above. A chaise long cantered down the stairs and smashed through the hall door. I think perhaps the guards are still trying to free the patrician, said the high priest. Apparently even his sacred passages locked themselves. All of them? I thought the sly devil had him everywhere, said Ridcully. All locked, said the high priest. All of them. Almost all of them, said a voice behind him. Ridcully's tones did not change as he turned around, except that a slight extra syrup was added. A figure had apparently stepped out of the wall. It was human, but only by default. Thin, pale, and clad all in dusty black, the patrician always put Ridcully in mind of a predatory flamingo, if you could find a flamingo that was black and had the patience of a rock. Ah, ah, uh, Lord Vetinari, he said. I am so glad you are unhurt. I will see you, gentlemen, in the oblong office, said the patrician. Behind him, a panel in the wall slid back noiselessly. I am... Um... I believe there are a number of guards upstairs trying to uh, free you, the chief priest began. The patrician waved a thin hand at him. I wouldn't dream of stopping them, he said. It gives them something to do and makes them feel important. Otherwise, they just have to stand around all day looking fierce and controlling their bladders. Come this way. The leaders of the other Ankh-Morpork guilds turned up in ones and twos, gradually filling the room. The patrician sat gloomily, staring at the paperwork on his desk as they argued. "'Well, it's not us,' said the head of the alchemists. "'Things are always flying through the air when you fellows are around,' said Ridcully. "'Yes, but that's only because of unforeseen exothermic reactions,' said the alchemist. "'Things keep blowing up.' translated the deputy-head alchemist without looking up. They may blow up, but they come down again. They don't flutter around and e.g. start unscrewing themselves, said his chief, giving him a warning frown. Anyway, why'd we do it to ourselves? I tell you, it's hell in my workshop. There's stuff whizzing everywhere. Just before I came out, a huge and, and very expensive piece of glassware broke into splinters. Marry, t'was a sharp retort, said a wretched voice. The press of bodies moved aside to reveal the general secretary and chief butt of the Guild of Fools and Joculators. He flinched under the attention, but he generally flinched all the time anyway. He had the look of a man whose face has been ground zero for one custard pie too many, whose trousers have been too often awash with whitewash, whose nerves would disintegrate completely at the sound of just one more whoopee cushion. The other guild leaders tried to be nice to him, in the same way that people try to be kind to other people who are standing on the ledges of very high buildings. "'What do you mean, Geoffrey? said Ridcully, as kindly as he could. The fool gulped. "'Well, you see,' he mumbled, "'we have sharp as in splinters, and retort as in large glass alchemical vessel, and thus we get a pun on sharp retort.' which also means, well, a scathing answer. Sharp retort, you see. It's a play on words. Hmm. It's not very good, is it? The Arch-Chancellor looked into the eyes like two runny eggs. Oh, a pun, he said. Of course. Ho, 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 ho. He waved a hand encouragingly at the others. Ho, 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 said the chief priest. Ho, 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 said the leader of the Assassin's Guild. Ho, 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 
said the head alchemist. And you know what makes it even funnier? As that it was actually an alembic. So, what you're telling me, said the patrician, as considerate hands led the fool away, is that none of you are responsible for these events? He gave Ridcully a meaningful look as he spoke. The Arch-Chancellor was about to answer when his eye was caught by a movement on the patrician's desk. There was a little model of the palace in a glass globe, and next to it was a paper knife. The paper knife was slowly bending. "'Well?' said the patrician. "'Not us,' said Ridcully, his voice hollow. The patrician followed his gaze. The knife was already curved like a bow. The patrician scanned the sheepish crowd until he found Captain Doxy of the City Guard Daywatch. "'Can't you do something?' he said. "'Um, like what, sir? The knife? Uh, I suppose I could arrest it for being bent?' Lord Vetinari threw his hands up in the air. "'So it's not magic. It's not gods. It's not people. What is it? And who's going to stop it? Who am I going to call?' Half an hour later, the little globe had vanished. No one noticed. They never do. Mrs. Cake knew who she was going to call. You there, one-man bucket, she said. Then she ducked, just in case. A reedy and petulant voice oozed out of the air. Where have you been? Can't move in here. Mrs. Cake bit her lip. Such a direct reply meant her spirit guide was worried. When he didn't have anything on his mind, he spent five minutes talking about buffaloes and great white spirits. Although if one man Bucket had ever been near white spirit, he'd drunk it, and it was anyone's guess what he'd do to a buffalo. And he kept putting ums and hows into the conversation. What do you mean? There has been a catastrophe or something. Some kind of... Ten seconds plague? No, don't think so. There's real pressure here, you know. What's holding everything up? What do you mean? Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I'm trying to talk to the lady. You lot over there, keep the noise down. Oh, yeah, said's you. Mrs Cake was aware of other voices trying to drown him out. One man bucket. Heathen savage, am I? So you know what this heathen savage says to you? Yeah. Listen, I've been over here for a hundred years, me. I don't have to take talk like that from someone who's still warm. Right, that does it. You... His voice faded. Mrs Cake set her jaw. His voice came back. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, well, maybe you was big when you was alive, friend, but here and now you're just a bedsheet with holes in it. Oh, so you don't like that, eh? Oh, he's going to start fighting again, Mum, said Ludmilla, who was curled up by the kitchen stove. He always calls people friend just before he hits them. Mrs Cake sighed. And it sounds as if he's going to fight a lot of people, said Ludmilla. Oh, all right, go and fetch me a vase, a cheap one, mind. It is widely suspected, but not generally known, that everything has an associated spirit form, which upon its demise exists briefly in the drafty gap between the worlds of the living and the dead. This is important. No, not that one. That belonged to your granny. This ghostly survival does not last for long without a consciousness to hold it together, but depending on what you have in mind, it can last for just long enough. That one'll do. I never liked the pattern. Mrs Cake took an orange vase with pink peonies on it from her daughter's paws. Are you still there, one-man bucket? she said. I'll make you regret the day you ever died, you whining... Catch! She dropped the vase onto the stove. It smashed. A moment later, there was a sound from the other side. If a discorporate spirit had hit another discorporate spirit with the ghost of a vase, it would have sounded just like that. Right, said the voice of one man bucket, and there's more where that came from, OK? The cakes, mother and hairy daughter, nodded at each other. When one man bucket spoke again, his voice dripped with smug satisfaction. 
Just a bit of an altercation about seniority here, he said. Just sorting out a bit of personal space. Got a lot of problems here, Mrs Cake. It's like a waiting room. There was a shrill clamour of other disembodied voices. Could you get the message, please, to Miss... Tell her there's a bag of coins on the ledge up the chimney. Agnes is not to have the silverware after what she said about our Molly. I didn't have time to feed the cat. Could someone go... Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up! That was one man bucket again. You've got no idea, have you? This is ghost talk, is it? Feed the cat, whatever happened to... I am very happy here and waiting for you to join me. Listen, if anyone else joins us, we'll be standing on one another's heads. That's not the point, that's not the point, that's all I'm saying. When you're a spirit, there's things you've got to say. Mrs Cake? Yes? You've got to tell someone about this. Mrs Cake nodded. Now you all go away, she said. I'm getting one of my headaches. The crystal ball faded. Well, said Ludmilla. I ain't going to tell no priests, said Mrs Cake firmly. It wasn't that Mrs Cake wasn't a religious woman. She was, as has already been hinted, a very religious woman indeed. There wasn't a temple, church, mosque or small group of standing stones anywhere in the city that she hadn't attended at one time or another, as a result of which she was far more feared than an age of enlightenment. The mere sight of Mrs Cake's small fat body on the threshold was enough to stop most priests dead in the middle of their invocation. Dead. That was the point. All the religions had very strong views about talking to the dead, and so did Mrs Cake. They held that it was sinful. Mrs Cake held that it was only common courtesy. This usually led to a fierce ecclesiastical debate which resulted in Mrs Cake giving the chief priest what she called a piece of her mind. There were so many pieces of Mrs Cake's mind left around the city now that it was quite surprising that there was enough left to power Mrs Cake. But strangely enough, the more pieces of her mind she gave away the more there seemed to be left. There was also the question of Ludmilla. Ludmilla was a problem. The late Mr Cake, God rest his soul, had never so much as even whistled at the full moon his whole life, and Mrs Cake had dark suspicions that Ludmilla was a throwback to the family's distant past in the mountains, or maybe had contracted genetics as a child. She was pretty certain her mother had once alluded circumspectly to the fact that great-uncle Erasmus sometimes had to eat his meals under the table, Either way, Ludmilla was a decent, upright young woman for three weeks in every four, and a perfectly well-behaved hairy wolf thing for the rest of the time. Priests often failed to see it that way, since by the time Mrs Cake fell out with whatever priests were currently moderating between her and the gods, she had usually already taken over the flower arrangements, altar dusting, temple cleaning, sacrificial stone scrubbing, honorary vestigial virgining, hassock repairing and every other vital religious support role. By sheer force of personality, her departure resulted in total chaos. Mrs Cake was aware that some religions had priestesses. What Mrs Cake thought about the ordination of women was unprintable. The religions with priestesses in Ankh-Morpork tended to attract a large crowd of plain-clothes priests from other denominations who were looking for a few hours' respite, somewhere they wouldn't encounter Mrs Cake. Mrs Cake buttoned up her coat. It won't work, said Ludmilla. I'll try the wizards, they ought to be told, said Mrs Cake. She was quivering with self-importance, like a small enraged football. Yes, but you said they never listen, said Ludmilla. Got to try. Anyway, what are you doing out of your room? Oh, Mother, you know I hate that room. There's no need. You can't be too careful. Supposing you was to take into your head to go and chase people's chickens. What would the neighbours say? I've never felt the least urge to chase a chicken, Mother, said Ludmilla wearily. Or run after carts barking. That's dogs, Mother. You just get back in your room and lock yourself in and get on with some sewing like a good girl. You know I can't hold the needles properly, Mother. Try for your mother. Yes, Mother, said Ludmilla. And don't go near the window. We don't want people upset. Yes, Mother. And you make sure you put your premonition on, Mum. You know your eyesight isn't what it was. 
Mrs Cake watched her daughter go upstairs. Then she locked the front door behind her and strode towards Unseen University, where she'd heard there was too much nonsense of all sorts. Anyone watching Mrs Cake's progress along the street would have noticed one or two odd details. Despite her erratic gait, no one bumped into her. They weren't avoiding her. She just wasn't where they were. At one point, she hesitated and stepped into an alleyway. A moment later, a barrel rolled off a cart that was unloading outside a tavern and smashed on the cobbles where she would have been. She stepped out of the alley and over the wreckage, grumbling to herself. Mrs Cake spent a lot of time grumbling. Her mouth was constantly moving, as if she was trying to dislodge a troublesome pip from somewhere in the back of her teeth. She reached the high black gates of the university and hesitated again, as if listening to some inner voice. Then she stepped aside and waited. Bill Dorr lay in the darkness of the hayloft and waited. Below he could hear the occasional horsey sounds of Binky, a soft movement, the champ of a jaw. Bill Dorr. So now he had a name. Of course he'd always had a name, but he'd been named for what he embodied, not for who he was. Bill Dorr. It had a good solid ring to it. Mr Bill Dorr. William Dorr, Esquire. Billy D. No, not Billy. Bill Dorr eased himself further into the hay. He reached into his robe and pulled out the golden timer. There was, quite perceptibly, less sand in the top bulb. He put it back. And then there was this sleep. He knew what it was. People did it for quite a lot of the time. They lay down and sleep happened. Presumably it served some purpose. He was watching out for it with interest. He would have to subject it to analysis. Night drifted across the world, coolly pursued by a new day. There was a stirring in the henhouse across the yard. Cock-a-doodle! Bill Dorr stared at the roof of the barn. Cock-a-doodle! Grey light was filtering in between the cracks. Yet only moments ago there had been the red light of sunset. Six hours had vanished. Bill hauled out the timer. Yes. The level was definitely down. While he had been waiting to experience sleep, something had stolen part of... part of his life. He'd completely missed it, too. Cock-a... He climbed down from the loft and stepped out into the thin mist of dawn. The elderly chickens watched him cautiously as he peered into their house. An ancient and rather embarrassed-looking cockerel glared at him and shrugged. There was a clanging noise from the direction of the house. An old iron barrel hoop was hanging by the door, and Miss Flitworth was hitting it vigorously with a ladle. He stalked over to investigate. What for are you making the noise, Miss Flitworth? She spun around, ladle half-raised. Good grief, you must walk like a cat, she said. I must? I meant I didn't hear you. She stood back and looked him up and down. There's still something about you I can't put my finger on, Bill Dorr, she said. Wish I knew what it was. The seven-foot skeleton regarded her stoically. He felt there was nothing he could say. What do you want for breakfast, said the old woman. Not that it'll make any difference, because it's porridge. Later she thought, he must have eaten it, because the bowl is empty. Why can't I remember? And then there was the matter of the scythe. He looked at it as if he'd never seen one before. She pointed out the grass nail and the handles. He looked at them politely. How do you sharpen it, Miss Flitworth? It's sharp enough, for goodness sake. How do you sharpen it more? You can't. Sharp, sharp. You can't get sharper than that. He'd swished it aimlessly and made a disappointed hissing noise. And there was the grass, too. The hay meadow was high on the hill behind the farm overlooking the cornfield. She watched him for a while. It was the most interesting technique she'd ever witnessed. She wouldn't even have thought that it was technically possible. Eventually, she said, It's good. You've got the swing and everything. Thank you, Miss Flitworth. But why one blade of grass at a time? Bill Dorr regarded the neat row of stalks for some while. There is... Another way? You can do lots in one go, you know. No, no, one blade at a time, 
One time, one blade. You won't cut many that way, said Miss Flitworth. Every last one, Miss Flitworth. Yes? Trust me on this. Miss Flitworth left him to it and went back to the farmhouse. She stood at the kitchen window and watched the distant dark figure for a while as it moved over the hillside. I wonder what he did, she thought. He's got a past. He's one of them men of mystery, I expect. Perhaps he did a robbery and he's lying low. He's cut a whole row already, one at a time, but somehow faster than a man cutting swathe by swathe. Miss Flitworth's only reading matter was the Farmer's Almanac and Seed Catalogue, which could last a whole year in the privy if no one was ill. In addition to sober information about phases of the moon and seed sowings, it took a certain grisly relish in recounting the various mass murders, vicious robberies and natural disasters that befell mankind. On the lines of June the 15th year of the impromptu stoat, on this day 150 years since a man killed by freak shower of goulash in Querm, or 14 die at hands of Tomb, the notorious herring thrower. The important thing about all these was that they happened a long way away, possibly by some kind of divine intervention. The only things that usually happened locally were the occasional theft of a chicken and the occasional wandering troll. Of course, there could also be robbers and bandits in the hills, but they got on well with the actual residents and were essential to the local economy. Even so, she felt she'd certainly feel safer with someone else about the place. The dark figure on the hillside was well into the second row. Behind it, the cut grass withered in the sun. I have finished, Miss Flitworth. Go and feed the pig, then. She's called Nancy. Nancy, said Bill, turning the word around in his mouth as though he was trying to see it from all sides. After my mother. I will go and feed the pig, Nancy, Miss Flitworth. It seemed to Miss Flitworth that mere seconds went by. I have finished, Miss Flitworth. She squinted at him. Then, slowly and deliberately, she wiped her hands on a cloth, stepped out into the yard, and headed for the pigsty. Nancy was eyeball deep in the swill trough. Miss Flitworth wondered exactly what comment she should make. Finally, she said, Very good, very good. You, um, you certainly work fast. Miss Flitworth, why does not the cockerel crow properly? Oh, that's just Cyril. He hasn't got a very good memory. Ridiculous, isn't it? I wish you'd get it right. Bill Dorr found a piece of chalk in the farm's old smithy, located a piece of board among the debris, and wrote very carefully for some time. Then he wedged the board in front of the henhouse and pointed Cyril towards it. This you will read, he said. Cyril peered myopically at the cock-a-doodle-doo in heavy Gothic script. Somewhere in his tiny, mad chicken mind, a very distinct and chilly understanding formed that he'd better learn to read very, very quickly. Bill Dorr sat back among the hay and thought about the day. It seemed to have been quite a full one. He'd cut the hay and fed animals and mended a window. He'd found some old overalls hanging in the barn. They seemed far more appropriate for a Bill Dorr than a robe woven of absolute darkness, so he'd put them on. And Miss Flitworth had given him a broad-brimmed straw hat and he'd ventured the half-mile walk into the town. It wasn't even a one-horse town. If anyone had a horse, they'd have eaten it. The residents appeared to be making a living by stealing one another's washing. There was a town square, which was ridiculous. It was really only an enlarged crossroads with a clock tower. And there was a tavern. He'd gone inside. After the initial pause, while everyone's mind had refocused to allow him room, they'd been cautiously hospitable. News travels even faster on a vine with few grapes. You'd be the new man up at Miss Flitworth's, said the barman. A Mr. Dorr, I did hear. Call me Bill. Ah, used to be a tidy old farm once upon a time. We never thought the old girl would stay on. Ah, agreed a couple of old men by the fireplace. Ah. New to these parts, then, said the barman. The sudden silence of the other men in the bar was like a black hole. Not precisely. Been here before, have you? Just passing through. They say old Miss Flitworth's a loony, 
said one of the figures on the benches around the smoke-blackened walls. But sharp as a knife, mind, said another hunched drinker. Oh, yes, she's sharp, all right, but still a loony. And they say she's got boxes full of treasure in that old parlour of hers. She'm tight with money, I know that. That proves it. Rich folk are always tight with money. All right, sharp and rich, but still a loony. You can't be loony and rich. You've got to be eccentric if you're rich. The silence returned and hovered. Bill Dorr sought desperately for something to say. He had never been very good at small talk. He'd never had much occasion to use it. What did people say at times like this? Ah, yes. I will buy everyone a drink, he announced. Later on, they taught him a game that consisted of a table with holes and nets around the edge and balls carved expertly out of wood, and apparently balls had to bounce off one another and into holes. It was called Pond. He played it well. In fact, he played it perfectly. At the start, he didn't know how not to, but after he had heard them gasp a few times, he corrected himself and started making mistakes with painstaking precision. By the time they taught him darts, he was getting really good at them. The more mistakes he made, the more people liked him. So he propelled the little feathery darts with cold skill, never letting one drop within a foot of the targets they urged on him. He even sent one ricocheting off a nail head and a lamp so that it landed in someone's beer, which made one of the older men laugh so much he had to be taken outside into the fresh air. They'd called him Good Old Bill. No one had ever called him that before. What a strange evening. There had been one bad moment, though. He'd heard a small voice say, That man is a skeleton. And had turned to see a small child in a nightdress watching him over the top of the bar, without terror, but with a sort of fascinated horror. The landlord, who by now Bill Dorr knew to be called Lifton, had laughed nervously and apologised. Ha! That's just her fancy, he said. The things children say. <laughs> Get on with you back to bed, Sal and say you're sorry to Mr. Dorr. He's a skeleton with clothes on, said the child. Why doesn't all the drink fall through? He'd almost panicked. His intrinsic powers were fading then. People could not normally see him. He occupied a blind spot in their senses, which they filled in somewhere inside their heads with something they preferred to encounter. But the adult's inability to see him clearly wasn't proof against this sort of insistent declaration, and he could feel the puzzlement around him. Then, just in time, its mother had come in from the back room and had taken the child away. There'd been muffled complaints on the lines of A skeleton with all bones on, disappearing around the bend in the stairs. And all the time the ancient clock over the fireplace had been ticking, ticking, chopping seconds off his life. There seemed to be so many of them not so long ago. There was a faint knocking at the barn door below the hayloft. He heard it pushed open. Are you decent, Bill Dorr? said Miss Flitworth's voice in the darkness. Bill Dorr analysed the sentence for meaning within context. Yes, he ventured. I brought you a hot milk drink. Yes. Come on, quick now, otherwise it'll go cold. Bill Dorr cautiously climbed down the wooden ladder. Miss Flitworth was holding a lantern and had a shawl around her shoulders. It's got cinnamon on it. My Ralph always liked cinnamon, she sighed. Bill Dorr was aware of undertones and overtones in the same way that an astronaut is aware of weather patterns below him. They're all visible, all there, all laid out for study and all totally divorced from actual experience. Thank you, he said. Miss Flitworth looked around. You've really made yourself at home here, she said brightly. Yes. She pulled the shawl around her shoulders. I'll um, be getting back to the house then, she said. You can bring the mug back in the morning. She sped away into the night. Bill Dorr took the drink up to the loft. He put it on a low beam and sat and watched it long after it grew cold and the candle had gone out. After a while he was aware of an insistent hissing. He took out the golden timer and put it right at the other end of the loft, under a pile of hay. It made no difference at all. Windle Poons peered at the house numbers. A hundred counting pines had died for this street alone. And then realised he didn't have to. 
He was being short-sighted out of habit. He improved his eyesight. Number 668 took some while to find because it was in fact on the first floor above a tailor's shop. Entrance was via an alleyway. There was a wooden door at the end of the alley. On its peeling paintwork, someone had pinned a notice which read in optimistic lettering, Come in, come in, the Fresh Start Club. Being dead is only the beginning. The door opened onto a flight of stairs that smelled of old paint and dead flies. They creaked even more than Windle's knees. Someone had been drawing on the walls. The phraseology was exotic, but the general tone was familiar enough. Spooks of the world arise, you have nothing to lose but your chains, and the silent majority want dead rights and end vitalism now. At the top was a landing with one door opening off it. Once upon a time someone had hung an oil lamp from the ceiling, but it looked as though it had never been lit for thousands of years. An ancient spider, possibly living on the remains of the oil, watched him warily from its eerie. Wendell looked at the card again, took a deep breath out of habit, and knocked. The Arch-Chancellor strode back into college in a fury, with the others trailing desperately behind him. Who is he going to call? We're the wizards around here? Yes, but we don't actually know what's happening, do we? said the Dean. So we're going to find out, Ridcully growled. I don't know who he's going to call, but I'm, but I'm damn sure who, who I'm going to call. He halted abruptly. The rest of the wizards piled into him. Oh, no, said the senior wrangler. Please, not that. Nothing to it, said Ridcully. Nothing to worry about. Read up on it last night, as a matter of fact. You can do it with three bits of wood and... Four cc of mouse blood, said the senior wrangler mournfully. You don't even need that. You can use two bits of wood and an egg. Has to be a fresh egg, though. Why, I suppose the mouse feels happier about it. No, I mean the egg. Oh, who knows how an egg feels? Anyway, said the dean, it's dangerous. I've always felt that he only stays in the octogram for the look of the thing. I hate it when he peers at you and seems to be counting. Yes, said the senior wrangler, we don't need to do that. We get over most things, dragons, monsters, rats. Remember the rats last year? Seemed to be everywhere. Lord Vetinari wouldn't listen to us. Oh, no. He paid that glib bugger in the red and yellow tights a thousand gold pieces to get rid of them. It worked, though, said the lecturer in recent runes. Of course it bloody worked, said the dean. It worked in Quirm and Stolat as well. He'd have got away with it in Pseudopolis as well if someone hadn't recognised him. Mr. So-called Amazing Maurice and his educated rodents. It's no good trying to change the subject, said Ridcully. We're going to do the right of Ashkente. Right? And summon death, said the dean. Oh, dear. Nothing wrong with death, said Ridcully. Professional fellow, job to do, fair and square. Play a straight bat, no problem. He'll know what's happening. Oh, dear, said the dean again. They reached the gateway. Mrs. Cake stepped forward, blocking the Arch-Chancellor's path. Ridcully raised his eyebrows. The Arch-Chancellor was not the kind of man who takes a special pleasure in being brusque and rude to women, or, to put it another way, he was brusque and rude to absolutely everyone, regardless of sex, which was equality of a sort. And if the following conversation had not been taking place between someone who listened to what people said several seconds before they said it, and someone who didn't listen to what people said at all, everything might have been a lot different. Or perhaps it wouldn't. Mrs. Cake led with an answer. I'm not your good woman, she snapped. And who are you, my good woman, said the Arch-Chancellor. Well, that's no way to talk to a respectable person, said Mrs. Cake. There's no need to be offended, said Ridcully. Oh, blow, is that what I'm doing? said Miss Cake. Madam, why are you answering me before I've even said something? What? What do you mean? What do you mean? What? They stared at one another, fixed in an unbreakable conversational deadlock. Then Mrs Cake realised. Oh, I'm prematurely premonitting again, she said. She stuck a finger in her ear and wiggled it around with a squelching noise. Ugh. It's all right now. Now, the reason... But Ridcully had had enough. 
Bursa, he said, give this woman uh, a penny and send her about her business, will you? What? said Mrs. Cake, suddenly enraged beyond belief. There's too much of this sort of thing these days, said Red Cully to the dean as they strolled away. It's the pressures and stresses of living in a big city, said the senior wrangler. I read that somewhere. It takes people in a funny way. They stepped through the wicket gate in one of the big doors, and the dean shut it in Mrs. Cake's face. He might not come, said the senior wrangler, as they crossed the quadrangle. He didn't come for poor old Windle's farewell party. He'll come for the right, said Ridcully. It doesn't just send him an invitation, it puts bloody RSVP on it. Oh, good, I like sherry, said the bursar. Shut up, bursar. There was an alley somewhere in the shades, which was the most alley-ridden part of an alley-ridden city. Something small and shiny rolled into it and vanished in the darkness. After a while, there were faint metallic noises. The atmosphere in the Arch-Chancellor's study was very cold. Eventually the bursar quavered, Maybe he's busy? Shut up, said the wizards in unison. Something was happening. The floor inside the chalked magic octogram was going white with frost. He's never done that before, said the senior wrangler. This is all wrong, you know, said the dean. We should have some candles and some cauldrons and some stuff bubbling in crucibles and some glitter dust and some coloured smoke. The right doesn't need any of that stuff, said Ridcully sharply. It might not need them, but I do, muttered the dean. Doing it without the right paraphernalia is like taking all your clothes off to have a bath. That's what I do said Ridcully. Hm. Well, each to his own, of course, but some of us like to think that we're maintaining standards. Perhaps he's on holiday, said the bursar. Oh, yes, sneered the dean. On a beach somewhere, a few ice drinks and a kiss-me-quick hat. Hold on, hold on, someone's coming, hissed the senior wrangler. The faint outlines of a hooded figure appeared above the octogram. It wavered constantly as if it was being seen through superheated air. That's him, said the dean. No, it isn't, said the lecturer in recent rooms. It's just a grey robe. There's nothing in it, he stopped. It turned slowly. It was filled out, suggesting a wearer, but at the same time had a feeling of hollowness, as if it was merely a shape for something with no shape of its own. The hood was empty. The emptiness watched the wizards for a few seconds and then focused on the Arch-Chancellor. It said, who were you? Ridcully swallowed. Um, Mustrum Ridcully, Arch-Chancellor. The hood nodded. The dean stuck a finger in his ear and waggled it around. The robe wasn't talking, nothing was being heard, it was just that afterwards you had a sudden memory of what had just failed to be said and no knowledge of how it had got there. The hood said, you are a superior being on this world? Ridcully looked at the other wizards. The dean glared. Well, you know, yes. First among equals and all that sort of thing. Yes, Ridcully managed. He was told, we bring good news. Good news? Good news? Ridcully squirmed under the gazerless gaze. Oh, good. That is good news. He was told, death has retired. Uh, pardon? He was told, death has retired. Oh, um, that is news, said Ridcully uncertainly. Um, how? Exactly, uh, how? He was told, we apologise for the recent lapse in standards. Lapse, said the Arch-Chancellor, now totally mystified. Well, um, I'm not sure there's been a... I mean, of course, the fellow was always knocking around, but most of the time we hardly... He was told, it has all been most irregular. It has, has it? Oh, well, can't have irregularity, said the Arch-Chancellor. He was told, it must have been terrible. Well, I... that is, I suppose we... I'm not sure. Must it? He was told, but now the burden is removed, rejoice, that is all. 
There will be a short transitional period before a suitable candidate presents itself, and then normal service will be resumed. In the meantime, we apologise for any unavoidable inconvenience caused by superfluous life effects. The figure wavered and began to fade. The Arch-Chancellor waved his hands desperately. Wait, he said, you can't just go like that. I, I, I command you to stay. What service? What does it all mean? Who are you? The Hood turned back towards him and said, We are nothing. Well, that's no help. What is your name? We are Oblivion. The figure vanished. The wizards fell silent. The frost in the octogram began to sublime back into air. Oh, oh, said the bursar. Short transitional period? Is that what this is? said the dean. The floor shook. Oh, oh, said the bursar again. That doesn't explain why everything is living a life of its own, said the senior wrangler. Hold on, hold on, said Ridcully. If people are coming to the end of their life and leaving their bodies and everything, but death isn't taking them away, then that means they're queuing up here, said the dean, with nowhere to go. Not just people, said the senior wrangler. It must be everything, everything that dies. Filling up the world with life force, said Ridcully. The wizards were speaking in a monotone, everyone's mind running ahead of the conversation to the distant horror of the conclusion. Hanging around with nothing to do, said the lecturer in recent runes. Ghosts. Poltergeist activity. Good grief. Hang on, though, said the bursar, who'd managed to catch up with events. Why should that worry us? We don't have anything to fear from the dead, do we? After all, they're just people who are dead. They're just ordinary people. People like us. The wizards thought about this. They looked at one another. They started to shout all at once. No one remembered the bit about suitable candidates. Belief is one of the most powerful organic forces in the multiverse. It may not be able to move mountains exactly, but it can create someone who can. People get exactly the wrong idea about belief. They think it works back to front. They think the sequence is first object, then belief. In fact, it works the other way. Belief sloshes around in the firmament like lumps of clay spiralling into a potter's wheel. That's how gods get created, for example. They clearly must be created by their own believers, because a brief resume of the lives of most gods suggests that their origins certainly couldn't be divine. They tend to do exactly the things people would do, if only they could, especially when it comes to nymphs, golden showers, and the smiting of your enemies. Belief creates other things. It created death. Not death, which is merely a technical term for a state caused by prolonged absence of life, but death, the personality. He evolved, as it were, along with life. As soon as a living thing was even dimly aware of the concept of suddenly becoming a non-living thing, there was death. He was death long before humans ever considered him. They only added the shape and all the scythe and the robe business to a personality that was already millions of years old. And now he had gone. But belief doesn't stop. Belief goes right on believing. And since the focal point of belief had been lost, new points sprang up. Small as yet, not very powerful. The private deaths of every species no longer united but specific. In the stream, black-scaled, swam the new death of mayflies. In the forests, invisible, a creature of sound only, drifted the chop-chop-chop of the death of trees. Over the desert, a dark and empty shell moved purposefully half an inch above the ground. The death of tortoises. The death of humanity hadn't been finished yet. Humans can believe some very complex things. It's like the difference between off the peg and bespoke. The metallic sounds stopped coming from the alley. Then there was a silence. It was the particularly wary silence of something making no noise. And finally there was a very faint jangling sound disappearing into the distance. Don't stand in the doorway, friend. Don't block up the hall. Come on in. Windlepoons blinked in the gloom. 
When his eyes became accustomed to it, he realised that there was a semicircle of chairs in an otherwise rather bare and dusty room. They were all occupied. In the centre, at the focus, as it were, of the half-circle, was a small table at which someone had been seated. They were now advancing towards him with their hand out and a big smile on their face. "'Don't tell me, let me guess,' they said. "'You're a zombie, right?' "'Er...' Windlepoons had never seen anyone with such a pallid skin, such as there was of it before, or wearing clothes that looked as if they'd been washed in razor blades and smelled as though someone had not only died in them but was still in them, or sporting a glad-to-be-grey badge. "'I, um, I, I don't know,' he said. "'I suppose so, only they buried me, you see, and there was this card.' He held it out like a shield. "'Course there was, course there was,' said the figure. "'He's going to want me to shake hands,' Windle thought. "'If I do, I just know I'm going to end up with more fingers than I started with. "'Oh, my goodness, will I end up like that?' "'And I, I'm dead,' he said lamely. "'And fed up with being pushed around, eh?' said the greenish-skinned one. "'Windle shook his hand very carefully.' Well, not exactly fed. Shoe's the name. Reg Shoe. Poons. Windle Poons, said Windle. Um. Yes, it's always the same, said Reg Shoe bitterly. Once you're dead, people just don't want to know, right? They act as if you've got some horrible disease. Dying can happen to anyone, right? Everyone, I, I should have thought, said Windle. Um, I... Yes, I know what it's like. Tell someone you're dead and they look at you as if they've seen a ghost, Mr. Shoe went on. Windle realised that talking to Mr. Shoe was very much like talking to the Arch-Chancellor. It didn't actually matter what you said because he wasn't listening. Only in Mustrum Ridcully's case it was because he just wasn't bothering, while Red Shoe was in fact supplying your side of the conversation somewhere inside his own head. Yes, right, said Windle, giving in. We were just finishing off, in fact said Mr. Shoe. Let me introduce you. Everyone, this is... He hesitated. Um, Poons. Windle Poons. Brother Windle, said Mr. Shoe. Gave him a big, fresh start welcome. There was an embarrassed chorus of hellos. A large and rather hairy young man at the end of the row caught Windle's eye and rolled his own yellow eyes in a theatrical gesture of fellow feeling. This is brother Arthur Winkins. Count not far out, said a female voice sharply. And sister Doreen, I mean, countess not far out, of course. Charmed, I'm sure, said the female voice, as the small dumpy woman sitting next to the small dumpy shape of the count extended a beringed hand. The count himself gave Windle a worried grin. He seemed to be wearing opera dress designed for a man several sizes larger. And Brother Schleppel? The chair was empty, but a deep voice from the darkness underneath it said, Evening. And Brother Lupine? The muscular, hairy man with the long canines and pointy ears gave Windle's hand a hearty shake. And Sister Droll, and Brother Gorper, and Brother Ixalite. Windle shook a number of variations on the theme of hand. Brother Ixalite handed him a small piece of yellow paper. On it was written one word. Ooh-ee-ooh-ee-ooh-ee-ooh-ee-ooh-ee-ooh-ee. I'm sorry there aren't more here tonight, said Mr. Shoe. I do my best, but I'm afraid some people just don't seem prepared to make the effort. Um, dead people, said Windle, still staring at the note. Apathy, I call it, said Mr. Shoe bitterly. How can the movement make progress if people are just going to lie around the whole time? Lupine started making frantic, don't-get-him-started signals behind Mr. Shoe's head, but Windle wasn't able to stop himself in time. What movement? he said. Dead rights, said Mr. Shoe promptly. I'll give you one of my leaflets. But, uh, surely, um, dead people don't have rights, said Windle. In the corner of his vision he saw Lupine put his hand over his eyes. You're dead right there said Lupine, his face absolutely straight. Mr. Shoe glared at him. Apathy, he repeated. It's always the same. You do your best for people and they just ignore you. Do you know people can say what they like about you and take away your property 
just because you're dead? And they... I thought that most people, when they died, just... Mm, you know, died, said Windle. It's just laziness, said Mr. Shoe. They just don't want to make the effort. Windle had never seen anyone look so dejected. Red shoes seemed to shrink several inches. How long have you been undead, Windle? said Doreen with brittle brightness. Hardly any time at all, said Windle, relieved at the change of tone. I must say it's turning out to be different than I imagined. You get used to it, said Arthur Winkings, alias Count Not Far Out, oh, gloomily. That's the thing about being undead. It's as easy as falling off a cliff. We're all undead here. Lupine coughed. Except Lupine. I'm more what you might call honorary undead, said Lupine. Him being a werewolf, explained Arthur. I thought he was a werewolf as soon as I saw him, said Windle, nodding. Every full moon, said Lupine, regular. You start howling and growing hair, said Windle. They all shook their heads. Uh, no, said Lupine. I'm all sort of... Stop howling, and some of my hair temporarily falls out. It's bloody embarrassing. But I thought at the full moon your basic werewolf always... Lupin's problem, said Doreen, is that he approaches it from the other way, you see? I'm technically a wolf, said Lupin. Ridiculous, really. Every full moon I turn into a wolf man, and the rest of the time I'm just a wolf. Good grief, said Windle. That must be a terrible problem. The trousers are the worst part, said Lupine. Oh, are they? Oh, yeah. See, it's all right for human werewolves. They just keep their own clothes on. I mean, they might get a bit ripped, but at least they've got them handy on, right? Whereas if I see the full moon, next minute I'm walking and talking and I'm definitely in big trouble on account of being very deficient in the trousery vicinity, so I have to keep a pair stashed somewhere. Mr Shoe, call me Reg, lets me keep a pair where he works. I work at the mortuary on Elm Street, said Mr Shoe. I'm not ashamed. It's worth it to save a brother or a sister. Sorry, said Windle. Save? It's me that pins the card on the bottom of the lid, said Mr. Shoe. You never know. It has to be worth a try. Does it uh, often work? said Windle. He looked around the room. His tone must have suggested that it was a reasonably large room and had only eight people in it. Nine if you included the voice from under the chair, which presumably belonged to a person. Doreen and Arthur exchanged glasses. It worked for Arthur, said Doreen. Excuse me, said Windle. I couldn't help wondering, are you two um, vampires, by any chance? It's right, said Arthur. More's the pity. Ah, you should not talk like that, said Doreen haughtily. You should be proud of your noble lineage. Proud, said Arthur. Did you get bitten by a bat or something? said Windle quickly, anxious not to be the cause of any family friction. No, said Arthur, by a lawyer. I got this letter, see, with a posh blob of wax on it and everything. Blah, 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 great uncle, blah, 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 only surviving relative, blah, blah, blah. May we be the first to offer our heartiest, blah, blah, blah. One minute I'm Arthur Winkings, a coming man in the wholesale fruit and vegetable business. Next minute I find I'm Arthur Count Not Far Outo, owner of fifty acres of cliff face, a goated fall-off, and the castle that even the cockroaches have abandoned, and an invitation from the burgomaster to drop in down at the village one day and discuss three hundred years of back taxes. I hate lawyers, said the voice from under the chair. It had a sad, hollow sound. Windle tried to move his legs a little closer to his own chair. It was quite a good castle, said Doreen. A bloody heap of mouldering stone is what it was, said Arthur. It had nice views. Yeah, through every wall, said Arthur, dropping a portcullis into that avenue of conversation. I should have known even before we went to look at it. 
So I turned the carriage around, right? I thought, well, that's four days wasted right in the middle of our busy season. I don't think any more about it. Next thing, I wake up in the dark, I'm in a box, I finally find these matches, I light one, there's this card six inches from my nose. It said, You don't have to take this lying down, said Mr. Shoe proudly. That was one of my first ones. It wasn't my fault, said Dorian stiffly. You had been lying rigid for three days. It gave the priest a shock, I can tell you, said Arthur. <laughs> Priests, said Mr. Shoe, they're all the same, always telling you that you're going to live again after you're dead, but you just try it and see the look on their faces. Don't like priests either, said the voice from under the chair. Windle wondered if anyone else was hearing it. End of CD 3